Okay, like when Sony releases a new camera, they give the Sony cameras to everybody and their uncle. Yeah. And when Fuji releases a new camera, it feels like the weirdest smattering of people get them. It does. And it's like, I've never heard of this person. I've never heard of this person. These people never review cameras. Why did they get one? Yeah. So like Petapixel didn't see, doesn't seem to have gotten one, but the people at MKBHD seem to have gotten one. Like, a, I don't, I don't they understand. have done a couple of camera reviews. I think on that studio channel specifically, I know they've done like a medium format yeah. thing, but it does seem kind of strange. Like, it doesn't it doesn't seem like people that would be in the market for that camera would be watching their content. It's like Fuji wants to be competing with like Red and like with like the Komodo and these like $10,000 Cine camera stuff with the GFX and all the video features that just came out with and like large format video and all this sort of thing. But it's like Fuji isn't a video camera company, but like they seem to push really hard on the video features, but they also just no, they don't like. They're not getting there. Yeah, that, that, it's weird. If they're trying to do that, they're missing the mark a little bit because even the GFX, which we we were really frustrated recently about all the video features on the GFX that didn't come to the XH2S. But yeah, ig- ignoring that, even the GFX just. I mean, it is not in the same class as those cinema cameras. It doesn't have good external power options. It doesn't have the same. You know, like time code inputs, professional video outputs. Like, it's just not in the same class as those cameras. Just, so, why are they pushing for that? I feel like if Fuji wants to be in the video camera business, make a video camera. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they could. I'm sure they could figure that out. And it's like, yeah, but it, it feels like they're trying to like have one foot in that world. Yeah. And yeah, it does. It's not enough. It just doesn't like it works, but there's like so all these like gotchas every single time. It's like a little, like a little thing. I feel like we're getting into show content. We, we really are. We're just like totally it's, skipping over the pre-show. Especially today, in. we've got we've got so much cinema camera stuff. But it's before true. we before we get into all that, I think we need to declare some victory here. Okay. Yeah. 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 Because we've been, you know, people who have listened to this show know that we have a little bit of an issue with the way that our tings does their camera ratings. More of it's it's hilarious to poke fun. Yeah. And we did a pretty popular episode earlier this year where we kind of did our own take on their best filmmaking cameras. Right, right. And then more recently, you went and uh, saw like a, a new list of low light cameras and we made a little bit of fun of that. Mm-hmm. And when I was looking back at that list while I was writing the show notes, I noticed that they had updated their best filmmaking cameras for 2023 updated for august 23rd 2023 Mm -hmm. that's very recent yeah because well the previous one that we looked at in march or whatever like the cameras that they were listing were like three years old and it was just the weirdest selection of things yeah yeah it's really odd i'm looking at this this list here though and the best camera for filmmaking fujifilm xh2s yeah they finally figured it out yeah we finally got there how, how, about you, that? how do you feel about having feel the just, best filmmaking camera? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I feel justified. Feel pretty happy about it. I feel like they're still wrong, <laughs> and that if this is this is if this is August twenty twenty three, we're talking hybrid cameras. Maybe it's the S five Mark II. Like I prefer the XH two S because you can get the six point two open gate in four two two ten bit, and you can't get that in a S five Mark II. And like I prefer the Fuji colors and blah 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 blah. But if you're looking for like scopes or you want to record an external SSD and you have like other like it just depends on what your requirements are. And I feel like even still weird choice. Yeah. I kind of agree with you. I mean, I'm super happy with the XH2S for video and I feel vindicated that it's at the top of this list. But at the same time, I don't know if I would have picked this. 
Well, they're they're putting the Lumix S5 as the best upper mid range, not even the S5 Mark II. <laughs> yeah, it's like they don't know about half of the cameras in the world. It's it's just always a little weird. <laughs> mid the best mid range is the G6 Mark II. Best budget is the ZVE10. Okay, low light ZVE1. Okay. I don't know. Like it's it's a decent list. I would just make a few different choices, but I was as we've all we discussed so many different times. It's like, what are you doing? What do you, what are your needs? And then like those are going to kind of inform. Sure. And depending upon like which camera you pick, it's just going to be a matter of like a few probably a few hundred bucks at a certain price point. I guess I'm I'm going to cut them a little bit of slack because I feel like the XH2S is at least a reasonable pick for this. I mean, I'm pretty pumped about it. <laughs> Whereas I didn't think their past ones were reasonable picks. Yeah, so, all right. I mean, they're yeah. getting closer. They're getting they, they a, are lot getting closer. a lot closer. Yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna stay on that R team's beat. Yeah, keep them keep them in check. Yeah, yeah. Because we're, we know they listen to this podcast. Absolutely. And I mean, uh, why do you think that that article? I mean, I can't think of another reason, honestly. <laughs> Well, like we said, we do have a lot to cover today, so yep. we probably better uh, get started on that. Welcome back to the Camera Gear Podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Lucas. And we're here today to talk about the gear, software, and techniques we use to shoot photos and video. So, as just mentioned, we're talking about cinema cameras today, and that clearly means we need to start with the Fuji GFX series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got some. I got some thoughts to finish here, Daniel. Like, there's so many cool things that Fuji could do. They could, like, if they had LUTs for all of their film simulations, if they had better support for, you know, different ways to transform their footage out of F log, their log profiles. Like, they added the B raw and they added the ProRes raw, and that's cool. And they're like starting to add scopes and time codes and things. And it's like they're all kind of there. Yeah, but it feels like. You know, they could they could just commit and they could make like the equivalent of a C70, but a Fuji camera, and it would be like super 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 cool. It's just like they're not doing it. They're just like halfway doing it all the way around all the way around. And I just I don't know. I don't under I don't understand it. The GFX medium format camera is sorry. The GFX the second. It's it's like it's a it's a photo camera. It is a you know high res, hundred and two megapixel, blah 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 blah. Why are they pushing it as a video camera? If you're spending seventy five hundred dollars on a video camera, I can think of so many other better choices than this. Is it because they want people who are buying it as a photo camera to just be able to have video stuff? Because it doesn't feel like it's just tacked on. I mean, the amount of things that you can do with this and like all of the video scopes and the features and everything, they're really gearing it as like a, this is a second camera to your Airy 65. I mean, that's what gets me about it is that it doesn't just seem like they were wanting to add on, you know, like, like a bonus feature. Because if you're adding stuff like scopes, you know, you're doing software development to add things like vector scopes and all that. That's like a pro level video feature. I mean, that's something that, most other consumer cameras don't have, you know, Panasonic being one of the few exceptions that does have those things. And yeah, it's like, why are you doing this unless that's a serious push? Mm-hmm. And it seems, so it seems like they are making a serious push for video, but I just don't get it. I like, I get it because like video sells and it's a great place to move into, but I don't understand why they don't just like make a video camera instead of shoehorning all of these really cool video features into 
their like top end photo lines. I agree. I feel like the X-H2S was the closest thing they came to as far as like a video camera. But then that one was missing all of like the extra features that you need. And I just. It, it feels to me like maybe they're trying to like dip their toe in the water and see if this is something people want. Because I mean, yeah. Fuji has always had a hard time being taken seriously in like this professional type sure. video space. And so maybe they're just trying to like, you know, let's see how this goes. And then if this goes well, maybe we'll make a video camera. But the problem with that is that because they're kind of like compromising on things and not going all in, they're not really going to get good data on it. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I guess we'll see like who's actually using this, you know, the GFX 100, the second for, for video and that sort of thing. I just, we're going to talk about the Verano later. Because that camera looks amazing. Yeah. And like whenever you look at something like an FX9 or Burano or those kind of cameras, it's it's like here's the sensor and then you can do like all these different resolutions and different ways to either crop in and do one-to-one or like you can oversample these sections to get this size image or you can do full width but crop top and bottom to get this size image and like all of these different ways to format it. And then on top of that, it's like what codecs and what things are you doing and the gfx has that kind of feature which is not something you usually get in a photo camera usually it's like do you want to shoot open gate do you want to shoot 16 by 9 do you want to shoot dci and like those are your options whereas with the gfx 102 it's like okay well you can shoot 8k full width or you can shoot 8k one-to-one or you can shoot 6k oversampled from 8k or you can shoot in these different and they have like all these different, different crazy you know resolution format options that then feed into the subset of questions of like, well, do you want to shoot that in raw or 422 or 420 or, you know, all these other things. And it's like, that's a really, really cinema camera style feature, right? which is just so strange in this camera. So I, we're not even talking about the GFX one today, but I wanted to cover a few things that we kind of missed on the last round of conversation. Cool. What do you got? One of which was, we mentioned that they were going to support, um, they have, here's F-Log2, blah, 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 and you know, use it on your movie shoots. And so I immediately complained that it's like, these people are going to use ASUS or some sort of color workflow, and Fuji doesn't isn't part of the ASUS Academy standard, and like, it's not built into Resolve. And like, how the heck are like, what, like, what are you going to do? This is ridiculous. Turns out they are releasing an IDT to transform into ASUS. Interesting. And I thought that was amazing. I'm yeah. like, yes, finally Cause, cause they're we, doing it. You complained about that months ago. Yeah, I just, I keep complaining about it because mm-hmm. it's like, you can use the LUT to get into Rec. 709, but I want something that lets me, like give me the gamma curve thing so I can transform it into other things so I can match my footage. And like, if they want to pair this camera with an Airy camera or a RED camera or something and then they use it as like a crash cam on like actual movie shoots, that are large format, they need to be able to run it into ACES. And so they released this week that IDT transform. So you can go to their website, you can look up F-Log2 and you can grab an F-Log2 to ACES IDT. And do I need to explain what that is? Now we've covered it in the past. We'll link to it in the show notes because you explained what the IDT transform was. I can't even remember what it stands for. But the point is, like, they have it in there and the documentation is horrible. And like... (laughs) Like if you're gonna if you're gonna go into if you're gonna go into Asus, it's not just Asus. Like there's Asus Zero and Asus One for your uh, gamut. 
So like there's two different gamuts that you can use. And then there's two different gammas, or like two or three different gammas you can use. And so like it kind of depends upon how you're shooting it and what you want to transform into. And so even though like here's a here's an ID2 transform to get you from F-Log2 into ACES, it doesn't tell you what what it is. Like am I am I in like API1 ACCT or am I in something else? And like it's just it's like where's the documentation yeah so maybe they didn't come out with that or i mean surely they know that i, d- I usually you put it in the file i yeah. downloaded the file i open it up into my text editor and it just says to asus <laughs> and it gives you no more information and then furthermore it's a clt file not a dclt file and so davinci resolve can't import the file you have to convert it into a dclt and i oh, have no annoying. idea how to do that like this whole color whatever aces blah 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 stuff is like in the really really small cross-section of people who like understand programming and are color and camera nerds and are also like maybe in an industry where they need to care about aces yeah. transforms and it's like the number of websites and people who actually care about this is so freaking small mm-hmm. that i can't find any information i'm like i have a i have a clt file and i need a dclt file what do I do? And they're like, oh, here's uh, this is what the programming looks like. You just have to like do the things. And I'm like, I don't, I don't necessarily understand this. And like, I don't know, I don't know what to do. And I'm like trying to figure out how can I import a CLT file into DaVinci Resolve. And it's like, well, Apple deprecated the use of open, open CL whenever they made the hard switch to metal. And maybe you can't do this on an M1 processor. And I was like, is this an Apple problem or is this a DaVinci Resolve problem? And I have no idea. I don't have any answers to this, but the point is Fuji's like, use our GFX 100 Mark II for, you know, cinema stuff. Here's a CLT file that you can't use in the most popular color grading software because it's the wrong kind of file and we're not going to provide any support documentation. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like they, they moved it a little bit farther, but they didn't go far enough. It's, it's just the exact same, this exact same thing that we're talking about with the Fuji cinema stuff where it's like, they want to do it but they get 90% there and mm-hmm. then they don't cross the line. And I'm yeah. like, great. IDT transforms into ACES. Let's do it. This is going to be fantastic for my workflows. And the documentation isn't there for me to actually use this stuff. It's Thanks. so, it's so funny seeing this stuff happen. And I think this may be something that comes up in a moment when we talk about black magic, where as a, as a purchaser, as a consumer, you know, you see some of these products and, it's just really frustrating because it feels like if they would just do this one more thing, this would be perfect. And this is one that just really doesn't make sense. It's a, I don't know why they're trying so hard to be a video camera company without taking like without going all in on it. Like, it either it either feels like lip service or it feels like they don't understand their customer base. Like if they're trying to appeal to people who are color grading in DaVinci Resolve, which I assume that's where people are color grading, because it's like. You know, maybe this is for people who are using um, Avid. Avid. I don't. I don't know, but it's, I just. I don't know. I don't. I don't get it. It's like learning your customer spaces and like provide the things that they they need. I, maybe. Maybe I don't understand who they think their customer base is. Yeah. Apparently, I, it's not I me. Yes. I mean, you know, you would like to think that a company that big would be doing some research into their customer yeah. base, talking to users. And so that's that's what kind of makes me think maybe they know of a market for the GFX doing video that we're not really aware of because I just can't imagine them adding all these features for no reason. So they, they must know something. But yeah, I don't I don't know what the deal is with this. Hopefully, they'll come out with that documentation soon. Yeah, I just it's very frustrating. The camera isn't even out yet. So like maybe when the camera's out, like we'll get more information. I'm, yeah. I'm going to keep my eye on it. I just... 
I don't know. It's it's all just very frustrating. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Got anything else in that GFX? One more thing. Well, no, I won't complain about that. Like, I want to complain about it, but I'm not going to. Maybe. It's going to come up later. Uh, we, I, we talked about the new film simulation. Uh, it's called Riala, not Rila. Okay. Daniel. Jeez. Doesn't... Hey, man, I just, I just read things on the page. Mm-hmm. And then we talked about, boy, sure would be nice if they had more time code options on this thing. You know, what, we, they're missing this IDT. They're missing time code, blah, blah, blah. Well, they had the IDT, uh, even though it's dumb. And it supports wireless time code jamming from an Atomos UltraSync Blue. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, built built in wireless time code syncing as long, along with, you know, a few other time code features. So they are thinking about those things. It's like they added so many of the stuff that you need for this to be legit video yeah and so i kind of wanted to make sure that we made note of that you know last time we said it wasn't there Mm -hmm. yes they do have some time code features well i think it remains to be seen how much people actually do use this for video and how usable it is for video you know because i mean it does seem like they've got some good features going but yeah i don't know we'll see it's just weird it is just weird there was there's so much stuff happening this month i mean i think this is unprecedented honestly I, i know september is always a big tech month but this, I mean, like this past week, as as we recorded this, like the the you know, within the past seven days, it's just crazy how many events there have been, how much new stuff has come out, like, like unbelievable. I know that, you know, we've been doing this for a year, and but we didn't record any episodes last September technically. So like maybe the problem is this is our first September. Maybe so as the Camera Gear podcast. But but I mean, I don't know. Even out of the announcements that have come out, I feel like these are bigger than usual things. Yeah, well, like, we haven't even got through Tuesday. And then we talked about the iPhones. We talked about the GFX. We didn't get to the Burano. We didn't get to the G9 Mark II. Mm-hmm. We didn't get to those RF cine lenses. And now IBC's going on. Yep. And, you know, Blackmagic had an event on Thursday. And then, like, new lenses have been coming out. There's so much stuff. There's so much stuff. And so, like, I know that we need to talk about the G9 because it came first. But I want to talk about this black Blackmagic thing. Yeah. Because I mean, there is so much drama. There really there there's that and then I'm hoping we have time to talk about the Burano too cuz oh, I'd love for this to be like a cinema yeah, a cinema camera discussion cuz sure. there, there's a lot happening in that world. I have so much to say about the Burano. Yeah. That camera is super 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 interesting. But let's talk about the Blackmagic first. Okay. What are they calling this thing? So that's that's the first confusing thing, right? But by the way, before we actually talk about it, I want to talk about the event. Did you get to see any of the event? No, I didn't watch the event. Oh my gosh. You need, you need to watch about five minutes of this event because this was the greatest keynote I have ever seen. Um, you're, you're not going to be able to watch it right now because you, you would need sound to really get the full benefit here. But, you know, we just, we just came off of like Apple doing their like cinematic masterpiece production yeah, yeah, yeah. of a keynote. We had Fuji doing their like weird Swedish you know, artsy fartsy thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got all these big, big productions. Then you've got Black Magic, where they have the CEO come out and he stands behind a counter. It feels like you're either in like elementary school show and tell or like a QVC type thing. And I mean, I'm talking like 10 seconds into this present. He just walks out and he's like, all right, we've got some new products. And then, and then like 10 seconds in, he just starts showing products. And so 
Like he just he he has this counter that he's standing behind, and he'll just like pull stuff out from behind the counter and start talking about it. And it's like just, Mary Poppins, yeah, pretty much. And it, it, he's like, "Here's this camera," and just like pulls this camera out from nowhere. And I mean, it's just like this super no nonsense delivery. You know, okay. CEO of the company talking about stuff, and then like he'll be showing some features, and and the only thing that takes you out of this presentation is that he'll show like you know, look at this feature, and he'll just say, "That's quite nice." Or that that's really cool. And then like they're switching <laughs> camera angles and stuff, but I mean it is I I loved that presentation. It just felt okay. so like raw and real. And I was like, this guy understands his stuff and he's just like, we're just gonna start talking about products. And I it, love it. Black Magic great. Raw. It's great. Anyway, so they did come out with this camera. It's the Black Magic Cinema Camera, which is a kind of confusing name because they have so the pocket cinema camera and this is just the cinema camera. So it's not a pocket cinema camera. It's just a cinema camera. Yeah. But it is the exact same, almost the exact same body as the pocket 6K. <laughs> Amusingly, it's smaller than the pocket 6K. Is it really? <laughs> because the, the current pocket 6K has an EF mount. Oh, that's right. Which is mu- has a much deeper flange distance than the L mount mm-hmm. on the new one. Mm-hmm. And so the new one is the exact same weight Exact same size, but it's a, it's like a half inch uh, less deep than the EF one. So that's interesting. So this this smaller camera is not a pocket camera compared to the pocket cameras that already exist because it's smaller. Yes, obviously, right. but it can use some of the same cages. Yeah, just yeah. as long as they're not top mount, basically. Most of the no, even that. Most of the same cages should work. Yeah, and then and then I watched like an interview on this, and like they specifically said they're like we haven't done any testing, but like. We know that some cages should work. Just yeah. kind of depends on which one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and and you know as well as a lot of other accessories, it's got the same ports and yep, yep. all that as the existing uh, pocket cameras. Okay. So so yeah, this new camera. It's very similar in shape and size to the existing pocket six K, which is EF. Mm-hmm. But this one is full frame six K L mount. Yep, which is which is what what was rumored. You know, it was rumored that they were going to come out with a potentially full-frame L-mount camera. And there was some question about whether it was going to be Super 35 or full-frame, and they mm-hmm. did go for full-frame. So you, you think this would be gangbusters? Everyone you, you would be just rioting in the streets because it's so good. Mm-hmm. What happened? People on the internet are furious about this camera. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I, I think that everybody wanted a box camera style thing, and I think they wanted it to have SDI output and... You know features like that. So they wanted an Ursa. They want they wanted an Ursa, but like a like a smaller Ursa, like an Ursa Mini, but not the Ursa Mini, but like a, a let's an call Ursa it an Micro. Ursa Nano or something. Yeah. Ursa Ursa Nano, I like that. Yeah, they wanted something like that, and instead they got this Pocket Six K thing. And I think what people are most upset about is that they feel like that form factor doesn't really make sense because it. It, when you look at the camera, it looks like a hybrid camera. It looks like something right. you just, just grip in your hand and yeah. use handheld, and it's got that big flippy screen on the back. And mm-hmm. I mean, it looks just like It feels like, like a, a run and gun camera. Yeah. But the reality is, I think a lot of people end up rigging it out, you know, external power, all the other accoutrement yeah. that you would normally well, those have. NPF batteries last like, what, 30 minutes? <laughs> you get an hour, they say. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, and, and you can use a battery grip. To get uh, oh, throw okay, two more batteries. Sure, in yeah, all right. So, so I think people are just upset because they feel like the form factor does not lend itself well to rigging, and for the uses of this camera, they would want to rig it up. It is. It's it's just so funny because like I would I watched the Cine D interview, and they're talking about this thing like 
People already have the Pocket 6K. It's already built into their workflows. And then this is just a great slot-in upgrade because if they have EF lenses, they can adapt EF to L or they can, you know, upgrade to L mount lenses because like look at all these great options that are out there and they probably already have all of this rigging equipment Mm -hmm. built around this body style so we want to keep the same body style to make it easy for everyone to use this camera and then everyone's mad (laughs) (laughs) because it's not easily riggable because it's not a box style it's like they were trying to address that market and completely missed it yeah it's it's really funny i think that they and I mean, to be fair, just like what we were saying about Fuji, you know, you'd like to hope that the company understands their market better than we do. You know, hopefully they have people that are you know, researching the stuff. And so maybe there are people that are excited about that because I, yeah. I, 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 I get their argument saying you could just drop it in. But I guess to me, it feels like I think there are a lot of people out there who would be more than happy to buy a new camera cage and be able to use a box style camera. Like, right. Like, like, I don't know if there are that many people that have so much rigging based around like that specific form factor that would make them want to do this. Like if you're spending this money, like you can, you can buy a new cage, you can buy a new, you know, whatever, you know, V mount plate or whatever you need. Like it's not that much money. Yeah. It feels like in order to accommodate that with like everything that they're doing with this cinema camera, I mean, if they wanted to make it into a box style, it feels like they'd have to redo like all of their manufacturing stuff, it probably would delay the, the con, you know, putting this out into the world. And mm-hmm. like, it feels like the, the camera would probably cost $3,500 at least. I, I mean, mean, I know Blackmagic mi- stuff is minimum. always a little cheaper, but yeah. I would expect that a box camera from them would probably run $4,000 mm-hmm. and it's not going to have a screen and it's going to be more expensive and it's all this stuff. And it's less achievable than like reusing the bodies that they've already developed and have already like, you know, seen, proven the cost for on their manufacturing and then just like adding in a different sensor, adding in a different mount and like being able to ship it for, you know, sub $3,000. I think people are really underselling the value that this camera gives you because I can't think of much else in this same price range that gives you the same pro level features. Now it's not, I mean, it's missing some things, obviously it doesn't have SDI out and stuff like that, but I mean, you get a pretty good value. I feel like for the $2,600 that this camera costs. Yeah. And it's, it's definitely geared, you know, straight up the middle for people who are doing like heavy video projects, right? It seems like to save money, they're they're taking out things that require extra development costs for them or like extra licensing costs. Because like whenever you and even like extra processing costs, mm-hmm. like this thing only basically only shoots raw. Yeah, like it can shoot. It'll shoot raw plus proxies, which is really cool. I think that I think that is a cool feature. I was trying to look and see if the older Pocket Six K did that, and I. I don't think it did. They they kind of he really uh, highlighted that in the presentation, which makes me think that that may be new to this. Camera. Yeah, all the discussion around it makes it sound like that's a new feature mm-hmm. that you can shoot raw and proxies, and then you can send the proxies straight from the camera to. I guess it's uh it's Blackmagic's cloud stuff. Yeah. So like if you're using Blackmagic Cloud, which we do for project syncing, but we're not using it for file storage. Mm-hmm. They said like, now you have file storage and you can buy like storage in the cloud and you can upload proxies to it straight from the camera, which yeah. is all really, really cool. It is. Yeah. But still can't shoot like H.265 in camera, mm-hmm. probably because they don't want to pay for it. And then there's a lot of processing overhead to shoot in those kind of codecs. And so it's like, we're just going to dump info from the sensor onto the card and it's just going to be a black magic raw. It took out ProRes support. So like, all, that's what all you're getting is Blackmagic Raw on this camera. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully that, that works with your yeah, workflow. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, for me, that was that was a disappointment because I think this camera looks really cool. But 
what would hold me back from wanting to use something like this is, you know, doing those run and gun projects where you know, we just need to go in, get some footage quickly and be able to edit with it. And I sure would like to have an option to record full quality H.264, H.265, something like that. Yep. You know, because cause now it's like, yeah, you can get your proxies to start editing quickly, but at some point you're going to have to deal with that raw stuff. And yeah. that's what I want on a big, you know, like a, like a film, but that's not what I want if I'm doing videography. Right, right. I I think it's an interesting camera. Um, you know, I, it seems like people talk a lot about like the look of a cinema camera and I don't necessarily know how to describe what that means. And I'm curious if you have thoughts of like what, what would set a cinema camera apart? It seems like that's kind of their push with this is like, you can get that look, you can get the raw, you know, like you can record in raw and all that stuff and you can get that at a really low price, but you've really got to be getting like that special X factor with this camera for it to be worth it. Otherwise it's not worth it. Well, I mean, I think like a cinema camera is something that is flexible to fit into the workflows. I mean, you think of a cinema workflow, it's all manual. Mm -hmm. You you want to be able to shoot in raw. You want to be able to get the most, you want to squeeze the most out of the sensor and you need to be able to integrate with all of your gear. And it just feels like this one basically hits the minimum requirements for that sort of thing. Like being able to, like you can record an external recorder like a Ninja if you need to get your H.265 and you can get your raw straight out of camera and do the proxies. And like it has a lot of the features, but like, you know, it's missing, it's missing that SDI. So you have to use HDMI. And like, if you need to power accessories, you're going to have to bring a different battery or like have a battery that then powers this. And, you know, it's, it's like, there's all of these extra little pieces that you kind of need in order to fit it into a set. So it doesn't feel like a full fledged cinema camera because it's missing a lot of those like extra pieces, but that's how they get this thing at $2,600. Like, I mean, they, I don't know, they, took out some things that like were in the previous camera but like some of that is you know they're saying oh well like the flange distance is too short and so they took out the the nds and like it doesn't have ibis but most people don't want ibis in a cinema camera and yeah so, and, and that's never been in a pocket, pocket yeah and camera. that's never been in there but like i don't know you get you only get like one card slot and mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually thought it was really interesting to compare this to the existing Pocket 6K G2. Sure. Because that one, the MSRP is $2,000. It was recently on sale for 1500 and that's not the first sale I've seen at that price. So you can get that camera pretty dang cheap. And compared to this one, you get the same resolutions and frame rates, except that you don't get the uh, 6x5 anamorphic and the mm-hmm. open gate. And, you know, it's a super 35 sensor, not full frame. Uh, but you do get 2.8K at 120 FPS, which the uh, the new one cannot do. No, that one only does it in, in HD. Mm-hmm. They both have uh, an advertised dynamic range of 13 stops. I mean, the new one's a full frame sensor. So, you know, presumably it can, uh, you know, has better low light performance. But in terms of DR, it's the same. Um, the new one has CF Express. The old one has uh, the Pocket 6K G2 has CFast and a UHS-2 uh, SD card slot. But really, like if you're recording on uh, one of these Blackmagic cinema cameras or pocket cinema cameras, I mean, you're if you're shooting in raw, you, you basically want to be shooting to an SSD. Yeah, you should be shooting to an SSD for sure, which both cameras can do. Yep. And the only other differences are, you know, obviously EF mount on the uh, 6K G2 uh, versus L here and the, the screen. So the new one has this 1500 nit screen. The old one does not. But... I don't know, man. That that's not 
like I, I feel like the L mount is the main reason I would want to get the new one. Sure. Otherwise yeah. you can save a thousand dollars and get a camera that, you know, basically is going to have similar image performance. So I guess it's like, do you need full frame? I am curious what the, like, the rolling shutter performance. I mean, it seems like this new, newer camera, it's somewhere in the 15 to 28 millisecond rolling shutter. Like you can kind of get it down to, if you're shooting like 1080p, you can get like eight milliseconds. Mm-hmm. But I would assume that the Pocket 6K is either the same or better because it's a smaller sensor. So it's like maybe ignoring the rolling shutter thing. Do you need a bigger sensor? Do you need the different mount? Yeah. Do you need the proxy workflow stuff? Mm-hmm. And like, it seems like that's basically it. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And if you, you know, if you say like, well, like I really want that, you know, I've got $2,600 to spend or I really want that brighter screen. You can get the 6K, uh, 6K Pro G2 which has the brighter screen, also has those built-in NDs. Okay. And that camera is about 2,500 bucks. Interesting. So I don't know, like this new one looks good to me, but it almost kind of makes me look at the older, the, the older 6K G2 and think that's a pretty good camera. You know, if I was looking at this new one and liking the features on it, I'd be kind of tempted to look at one of those older ones. Yeah. The, it seemed like the Blackmagic people were pushing the new sensor pretty hard. Mm-hmm. They added a uh, anti-aliasing filter, which the previous cameras did not have. So that's going to you know reduce the sharpness, help with moray, that sort of thing. Yeah. Most full-frame cameras have moved away from anti-aliasing filters. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It is. But, you know, people typically prefer a softer image. Mm-hmm. And then they were, they were talking about how, like, they reduced the dot pitch, which is, you know, the distance from the center one pixel to this distance, the distance from the center one pixel to the center of the adjacent pixel. And that, like, by reducing this, they can get better, like, kind of sharpness and contrast and there's like the the image off of this camera looks better and it yeah. looks more like what people were getting out of that original cinema camera that came out in like 2012 as far as like you know that black magic look mm-hmm. and color and feel of the image and it's they're, they were just really pushing that well, on top of it being full frame i mean this is new so we haven't really seen you know reviews yet or, or tests and that's what i'm really curious about because you know as as you and i work on bigger projects and kind of try to increase our own production value it makes me start looking at stuff like this and thinking that you know like it would be cool to have something that could really give you like just a better look sure you know something that looks more professional looks more cinematic and i'm just i'm curious to see that because it it does seem like this camera is going to live or die based on how that sensor performs and if it does have you know, kind of like this intangible, better look than what you get from, you know, like a normal mirrorless camera. Yeah. It's always really hard to be able to put your finger on like exactly how that, how that contrast curve looks when it comes out and how close the colors are to what you want after you transform it, you know, out of its raw format into something that you're able to work with and like how easy those codecs are to work with. So I will just kind of have to see, I never think of like black magic cameras do have you know, a look to them, but I never really think of it too much as having a look because you basically have to shoot in some sort of raw format. So, and then hopefully like people aren't, you know, lose, losing ProRes isn't a problem for people. Yeah. I mean, I would assume people who are using black magic are using resolve and you can't use ProRes raw, ProRes raw in resolve. So like, sure. Yeah. Maybe that's not a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably. So I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, obviously people are really upset about that. I, I think it's fine. I, I think they I, they would not have been able to hit this price point if they hadn't done that. And I think if they hadn't used their existing form factor. And I think hitting that price point is really valuable. I think there are people who will use this to make their first film. And that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do find myself like, 
even with this camera just coming out, I kind of feel like maybe these people that want a box camera, even the BS1H, you know, which is a little old at this point, right, might actually be a better choice. It probably is, though. I guess that one does shoot raw. You can do 6.2K raw to a ninja yep. out of a BS1H. Yep, that's right. So, I, yeah, I mean, you're going to get similar situation. They're both L-mount. Mm-hmm. I can see that being a better choice. Yeah. I Same price. You can get the BS1H new for 2500 Yeah. I mean, if if I didn't need full frame, I would think I would favor an FX30 over this. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so. Or or a Pocket 6K non... Sure. Uh, you know, like sure. a Pocket 6K, not a cinema camera. Yeah. But like you have to... Kind of, I guess you have to compare these things directly to what what supports B-RAW out. And I don't right. know of anything that's doing, you know, the dual proxies that isn't a cinema camera. Good point. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. I wasn't upset whenever I saw this. Like I was looking at some of like the new stuff because like, I missed the presentation and then I was like, oh, what did they announce? And it's like I saw this and I was like, I mean, it seems like a decent upgrade. It's a 6K, but... You know, sure, bummer that they took out the ND, but like they added full frame and they added L mount. That seems like a win. Mm-hmm. And then I went and I looked on Twitter and I was like, oh, everyone's really mad about yeah. this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I I was really surprised at all that backlash too. Yeah. But it's interesting. They announced a bunch of other cool stuff at the same event. Um, a couple of, a couple of cameras, you know, they do a lot of studio production stuff. They've got some kind of neat stuff there though. They have a, this new camera for a thousand dollars. That's micro four thirds shoots 4k and it's just this tiny tiny little camera that you know is presumably made for like overhead shots in a studio or whatever but drum shots they do so much stuff with those little cameras and i I think it's neat but they kind of surprised us um and mr uh mr black magic ceo pulled an iphone out from behind his magical counter of goodies okay and they announced an iphone app yeah they did i've actually already downloaded this and have been using it Whenever they first started talking about it, he's like, we've got an app. I thought what it was was a way to control a camera, you know, a Blackmagic camera remotely. And I was immediately thinking, like, why would anybody want to do that? You know, that's, that's, not, that's not what you do with these types of cameras. But that's not what it was. It's an actual camera app. A lot of those, like, alternate video camera apps for iPhone have gotten like, either really expensive. They're like, you could just pay $75 a month for this thing. Or, like, they've dropped support and, like, maybe they just kind of have you know, have fallen off yeah. as far as usefulness. Mm-hmm. And the the Blackmagic app is pretty good. Yeah. I mean, like, whenever you open it up, you by default are recording horizontally, and then you have to go into the settings and turn on vertical video because it's off by default, even <laughs> if you hold your phone in portrait orientation. Well, they, they, I'm curious how that works because the sensor is you know a horizontal sensor so it's i i I know i know for a fact that it is cropping in on the sensor whenever you shoot in that mode they called that in the presentation he called that stealth mode Ooh, that's fun you can set shutter angle i can't even set shutter angle on my xh2s yeah yeah i know and then you got like lens choices in here which is super super cool so what's really neat about this app is that you know it's a it's like a pro type camera app where you can set all the settings individually, even things like aperture that you can't set. It shows you what the aperture is uh-huh. for each lens, which is really cool. But I mean, it, it you, what I think is neat about this is that it uses the same interface of Blackmagic cameras. So if you're somebody who's worked with a normal, you know, like a pocket 6K or an Ursa or something, the interface on that is exactly the same, which is really neat. And I... I I don't know if you've used stuff like Filmic Pro, some of the you know more professional. I have. I've used the Moment One. I think I've used Filmic as like a trial. I got to say, most of those apps, 
are very powerful, but I find them super like confusing to use. And it's just like every app I've got to learn their weird control interface and try and figure out what they want to do. And I thought this one was surprisingly easy to use and I'm pretty happy to see it. Man, I figured it out immediately. It wasn't hard. Everything makes sense. You can change all the settings you need, like resolution and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, whenever I record video on my phone and like I'm going to want to like splice into things or even just when I'm recording through my phone, like normally I don't want to have to deal with the HDR and I have to like set it into like, like you go into the camera settings on your iPhone and it's like, oh, well, you know, do you get these data rates if you shoot in this and you get these data rates if you shoot in that? And like, well, what if I want 10, but I, but I don't want HDR and like, I don't get it. And like here, it's like all the settings are right there. I can change from like 4k to 1080 without going mm-hmm. into a di- like the settings app and like leaving the camera app. I can fix all of it. Whenever you start recording, it fixes the white balance in place. Yep, which which I will say that is a feature that they've added to the iPhone camera. That's a setting now. Oh, really? Um, but everything else you said, and, you know, something I said in our last episode was that I wanted the camera app to have like a documentation versus a like artistic mode. Uh-huh. And I feel like this new app is basically the mode that I wanted for artistic type stuff. And you can just you can just upload this puppy straight up to a. Uh straight up to the Dimension Resolve yeah, cloud. So, so or that, Black Magic Cloud, sorry. That was the other thing I wanted to talk about here because they were really pushing this new cloud stuff and they you know they, they added that support to the Ursa broadcast, but also they're gonna put in on that, that cinema camera eventually. But the main like centerpiece of that whole feature was this phone app. And they showed some really cool stuff where like you can have a resolve project that you set up that's a multi user, you know, cloud project. And then from the phone you can just automatically upload your clips into that project. Like you can select in the phone app what project you want to target and then you can update uh, or upload both proxy files and full res files if you want. And so you can be, I I think like the, their imagined use case for this was like if you're like filming an event or you're getting like news footage from the field, you know, like if you're like like a news station or something, you can have somebody film on this phone and it's just like going straight into the project. And that, I think that's a really neat workflow. Man, I can record straight into Rec 2020. This is this is cool. Mm-hmm. I think all those workflows make real make a lot of sense. I mean, we talk about the whole Fuji thing and like, okay, wow, camera to cloud. This is like a first. Like most people who are on the scenes are probably just going to use their iPhone and being able to like feed that stuff directly into Blackmagic's or whatever sort of like online proxy thing. This is this is fantastic. Yeah. And you know, I saw some people online making fun of it. I think they were just you know in a in a bad mood about this event, sure. but. Yeah, I saw some people kind of acting like it was not a serious thing and like, why is Blackmagic playing around with all this consumer stuff? But I think this is great. And, you know, I think you and I shoot a lot of events and we've shot some events that have like a really quick turnaround time on footage. And when I see stuff like this, I'm thinking, you know, you could have people that aren't professionals get their phone out. You could show them like, here, hey, download this app, use this app. And they could go and film some clips at the event and it could just upload straight into your project. And like yeah. you just have, they don't have to go later and like pull those things off their phone. Like you just have that footage in the moment. And that's Man, you really could, cool. you could set it to fix the white balance and set it to auto ISO. And mm-hmm. then you don't have to deal with any of like the weird, weird stuff going yeah. on. Mm-hmm. It, I like that it records the media into the app itself and doesn't pump it into your photo library unless you check a box. That's super nice. Mm-hmm. Interface is easy to use. I mean, I feel like it's a win kind of all the way around. Yep. And coming off the heels of the iPhone 15 launch where they're like, now you can shoot in log and like here's you know, seven different lens options that based upon like what the camera's doing and those will probably just feed straight into this. If you, 
for me, like my iPhone is just another camera in my arsenal and I get like, it's not going to have the same dynamic range and the same depth of field and all this stuff as, you know, my XH2S or whatever ca other cameras that we're using at the time. But it's still like, it has decent stabilization. It can be put places that those other ones can't. And it's just like a different tool and a different camera in my arsenal. That's right. And I want to be able to use, I don't want to have to deal with the Apple stuff. Like I don't want to have to, to get into 10-bit or Rec 2020 to have to shoot in like their weird HDR and then have to transform later and like deal with the footage or have a problem with like, I can't control the shutter speed. And now all of a sudden it's like, this will feed straight into my workflow, which is already in DaVinci Resolve. And I can fix all the things that I need to fix so that it is congruent as far as white balance and shutter angle with everything else I'm shooting. I'm into it. It's like, this yeah. is great. They know people are going to use their iPhones for stuff that they're working on. And this just makes it way easier to do that and then get it into your system. I mean, between this and the stuff we talked about last week with all those new iPhone improvements, mm -hmm. if you're somebody that's trying to, you know, professionally shoot, you know, TikTok videos, things for social media, using your phone in any capacity for, you know, like, like producing a polished product, I don't see how you use anything other than an iPhone. It's so much better for video than anything else out there. And like all of these different workflows are connecting into it. And it's like the main thing that's keeping me on an iPhone right now. And I'm like, man, with like USB-C coming to the iPhone 15 and like Log and Asus and all the different like new camera stuff, it's it feels like finally with, you know, the partnerships with like Blackmagic here and them, you know, bringing in more support for the iPhone and like the 15 adding a lot more of these like pro features that you kind of need and want it feels so much easier to integrate it into a workflow. Yeah, We're like, we all kind of knew that the camera's here and like the iPhone's good for using it for this sort of thing. But it's like, oh, yeah, but I have like massage the footage and like it's weird to work with. And if I want to copy these footage, these uh, videos off of my phone, I either have to like upload it to a service where I brought in a storage or I have to copy it using USB 2.0. And it's like, I don't know. This it, just makes it all a lot easier. Yeah, yeah, it's... I was I was shocked in that Apple event to see them talking about log and, and you know having Aces support and all that. I mean that that was crazy to see, and then this you know like hot on the heels of that, this app came out and Blackmagic saying like you know we've it you was know, clearly planned. Yeah, yeah, it was. But I mean, it's just like it's it's crazy to see like this fits into the workflow and like you can use this nicely with Resolve. I mean, it's just it, I think it's really cool. Yep, I'm super into it. Okay, so there's a lot of really cool stuff on Blackmagic, a lot of controversy on the cinema camera. I feel like we probably should like take a break and then jump into this Burano thing because we really want to get into it. I feel like we've been uh -huh. talking forever. You just you feel like you need a moment? I just need like two minutes. All right. Uh, but first, one thing I want to like caveat on before we get into the Burano, because like it's got this really interesting highlighted feature with their built-in NDs, is Blackmagic said... And I know like this is a way cheaper camera than development cost, but Blackmagic was like, we could not fit a an end, like an internal ND within the flange distance mm -hmm. because it, AF has all this space and L-mount doesn't. Right. And L-mount has a 20 millimeter flange distance. And they jumped the gun, but the Murano has built-in NDs and it has an E-mount at the base and that has an 18 millimeter flange distance. So awkward. Yeah. <laughs> it's like whenever someone rolls in in class and they're like, no, that's, that's impossible. Can't be done. And then someone else is like, but I just did it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Black magic. <laughs> Not an excuse. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll take a break and then come back and talk about the Burano. 
Daniel, how familiar are you with the Venice 2? I know a little bit about it. I've I've obviously heard of it. I know it's a professional cinema camera. I think it's one of the only other cameras besides the Ronin 4D that has the ability to separate the image sensor from the body. Like you can get some sort of, you know, like external kit or something to let you do that. And uh, that's about all I know about it. I did not know that. That's wild. Yep. Might, might have to do a deep dive on that at some point. I've had Venice 2 on my list of things to talk about for months. Do you know anything about the geography of Italy? I know very little about the geography of Italy. Well, there's an island near Venice called Barano. Oh, well, well, isn't that interesting? <laughs> you know, they're just kind of soning and coming out with a Barano. Wanted to let you know, this is basically like a Venice, but for one person. I got to say, I uh, as, as soon as I saw the name of this thing, first thing I did was go to Google and look up what Burano was because like, mm-hmm. I, I knew it was related to the Venice. And so I was like, yeah. this is probably a, you know, this is probably a location. And I had to hurry up and search it because I knew that all this content was about to start coming out on the camera and it would quickly become impossible to search. <laughs> <laughs> so I got in there quick enough and I was able to figure that out, that it wasn't an that's, island in Italy. That's fun. So this thing, this it's a cinema camera. It's shipping for $25,000. Yep. And then it's coming in above the FX9, but below the Venice 2. Mm-hmm. And the Venice 2 is like 70000 or something. You basically have to rent it. And you the can't, F- you and can't the really F- buy it. And the FX9 is about 11000 Yeah, so a lot more expensive than the FX9, a lot newer. And people are saying this is essentially a replacement for like the Cine Alta F55. Mm-hmm. Which we actually talked about recently. We did talk about it recently. And that camera is like 10 years old. Yeah. I think they had like an F6 and F65, but those are also, you know, in the 2014 time frame as far as release. I mean, so like they haven't come out with anything that's in this middle category as far as cinema camera for quite a while. Yeah. And, and it made quite a splash. I've seen a lot of people talking about this camera. Do you want to give us a quick rundown of the specs and then we can go into details? I mean, like there's, there's like... It does all the things. There you go. I don't know. It like, easy. So, like, there's a lot of like different interesting thing, interesting things to get into on this. But I think maybe we first talk about where it stands in our lineup, and I think that kind of makes a lot of the features make more sense. Okay. So we've talked about it being better than the FX9. So it's like FX3, FX6, FX9. Now the Burano, and then you have the Venice 2. And this is geared towards like one band filmmakers, people like the Venice 2 is for a crew. And so if you pick up a Venice 2 and on one side of the camera, on the operator side, the left side, it has all the things that you need to be a camera operator and run the camera. And on the other side is everything you need to be a first AC. That's really interesting. Yeah, so they, like, they designed that into the physical body. Mm-hmm. And so like that's that's the Venice, right? It's, it is built for a crew and you have multiple people. You have someone who has the focus pulling and like the director side is over here and all the, all the links and the cameras and the feeds for them come off one side and stuff for the operators off on the other side. The Venice doesn't have doesn't have autofocus. It's like it's not for your running gun single person. It is for a crew. Yeah. The Burano has the new AI autofocus stuff that you saw in the Sony R5 and the ZVE1. So it's got all these great autofocus features. It is all of the controls are on the operator side. And that's so what's for the operator. And then like if you don't you don't have an AC, so now you have autofocus. So that's great. They put IBIS in it. Yeah, which is which is really interesting, right? Yeah, you know? shocking for a cinema camera, in my it opinion. Is, yeah. Like, why would, like, really? 
people love ibis but i feel like people who shoot cinema stuff don't want it because Mm -hmm. like if you need to turn it off and put it into stabilization now the ibis is fighting the stabilization so i don't i don't understand why it has ibis but i think it's because it's meant to be handheld and they want that to you know they want this for a run and gun thing exactly because the camera itself is relatively small yeah it's uh, a roughly six inch a six inch cube Mm-hmm. And for comparison, the Komodo is like a four inch cube. So a little bigger than a Komodo, but it's basically like, here's your run and gun, you know, documentary, single person, movie stuff, camera. That's exactly how I see it. And that's why I thought the IBIS made sense as yep. a feature. But they also want to give you that ND. And the internal ND is really cool for two reasons. One, first camera ever with IBIS plus ND. Everyone's oh, like, impossible, can't do it. And Sony's like, you can do it. And also, uh, you don't, you can't complain about the distance of the flange because you can still do it. <laughs> and it's a, uh, it's an electronic, elect, it's not an electronic ND. I guess it's an electronic ND. It's the Venice is like, let's drop these pieces of glass in here. Mm-hmm. This one is they run current through a piece of glass that darkens. You yeah, know, like, I, I do think that's electronic versus like mechanical ND. Yeah, so pretty cool so it has one nd screen and then they put power through it and it'll go up to from an nd 0.06 to an nd Mm 2.1 which in all of our nd discussion i don't know what that means (laughs) because we've talked about like oh this is an nd 64 which is like two to the you know eighth power and so it's an that's not right two to the fourth power so the four stop nd did i do that right i didn't do that right dana what's my twos what's 64 uh is it six Sure, doesn't matter. Yeah. Whatever. But that's the point. Like you can have ND like eight, and that's a that's a three stop. Yeah. Or yeah, you can so have this, a two stop ND or three stop ND. But this, I don't know. I don't know what the point of six and the two point one means. Yeah. Yeah. So it has some kind of ND. Yes, which has a range. <laughs> yes. And it seems like there is maybe a little bit of magenta shift to get mm, whenever you do it. That's what I saw it. too. Yeah. But it's very manageable, and if you just reset your white balance, it's not going to be a problem at all. And it's consistent. So if you don't reset your white balance, it's very easy to correct in post. Interesting. So they did think about it and they made sure that it's it's very usable. So super, super cool that you're getting IBIS, ND. This is a one-man band, $25,000, decent camera. It ships with a PL mount, but it's the alpha mount thing situation. What is alpha mount? It's like, the, this is this is common for the Venice and for the, the Cine Alta cameras before it, where it's like they have this like PL mount system that like is on the front of the camera and then you can remove the mount and then put on other mounts onto it. And so it's basically like, like this is an interchangeable mount. Sure. But behind the interchangeable mount is an E-mount. Interesting. So you can okay. like take the mount off and put on your E-mount lenses. Or you can use PL or you can like swap oh, it to cool. EF or that sort of thing. Yeah. And the previous versions of this, you would lose the screws because the screws would come all the way out and then you'd lose them. Mm-hmm, and this course. one has like screw retainers. That's and so, nice. you know. It's like a like a first page feature. The screws don't fall out. <laughs> that was that was probably like so easy to engineer, and yep. now it's like the thing people are most excited about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, I think like this is the thing. It's like hey, this is a like legit cinema camera, and it's twenty five thousand dollars, which is pretty good for the, what it is. And it's got IBIS and and you know NDs all at the same time, and then it's an eight K full frame three by two sensor. Yeah, 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 and and I. I kind of zeroed in on the resolution a little bit and I was looking at some other cameras this morning, just kind of trying to understand, you know, like where we're at on resolution. And it kind of seems like, you know, if we're, if you're looking at cinema style cameras, I mean, they used to all be max of 4k. Like if you look at something like the Canon C200, C300, stuff like that, those are all shooting 4k at most. 
And it seems like a lot of this newer stuff starting to get into 6K. You know, like the Blackmagic thing we just talked about is 6K. The cheaper version of the Ronin 4D is 6K. And the Komodo, the Confinity, all those like exactly. mid-level are 6K. Yeah. And then we're finally starting to see some 8K stuff on these really higher end things. And then, you know, some mirrorless cameras are starting to offer it too. But like, if you want to talk about something that could record 8K for a long time, like it's, it's really just on some of these higher end things. But I thought that was kind of like, like to me, that's one thing that sets a camera like this apart from like a, you know, like a, like a mirrorless camera. It's like you can shoot in really high resolution for a long time. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So it kind of makes me want to get into like way down here on my, on my gotchas for this camera because it's like, yes, it can shoot 8K. And then, like, what are you actually going to shoot with? Has it's just this plethora of different yeah. options, mm-hmm. which is like, like we talked about on the GFX thing. Like, that's a, it's a cinema camera thing. And so, while it's an 8K sensor, you're never really going to shoot it mm-hmm. at like full width 8K, whatever. And, it seems like like they want to differentiate this from the from the Venice 2 and it seems like they want it to be you know you shoot the thing and then you deliver it in a pretty easy way and you're not having to like do all this cropping or processing or whatever and so it's like we need to talk about the files that it shoots because yeah. those are like yeah, some interesting weirdly compromised there. in some way but not really like it's good they're good stuff but it's it's anyways like as far as resolutions, like you can shoot in 8K or you can shoot in 6K or like 4K and you can like normally when you're shooting in those and you're shooting in raw, it's pixel for pixel. Like raw, that's like raw is like the straight data off the sensor. And so anything that's not 8K is going to be a crop basically. Right. And the 8K, like the sensor itself, it's like 8K, but the sensor is bigger than 8K. And so 8K is actually less than, like it's basically 8K at full frame, but it's less than the size of the sensor essentially. And then... They have a lot of really cool, interesting 6K resolutions, but the one that's maybe the most interesting that most people are going to use is the 6K that is oversampled from 8K. Yeah. Yeah. So you get like basically the same field of view of like full frame. Right. But it's it's downsampling from the 8K. Which is super weird. It is. Because this camera shoots in, you can shoot in AVC, which is, you know, basically a, like a- Like a compressed format. A compressed format. Or you can shoot in XOCN, which is- raw not raw and you can only shoot an XOCN LT which is light mm-hmm. you can't shoot an actual XOCN that's that's reserved for the Venice correct but like it's fine it's pretty good and XOCN is like here's all of the information off the sensor and then here's all these extra little files that tell like the your computer how to like process it because it's not processing anything in camera to like encode it your computer's going to do all that processing and so it's just like here's all the information how it's formatted and we're, de- we're delivering it mm-hmm. but like they don't they i saw two people like one person directly asked the question and one person be like i don't know how they're doing this because if you shoot in eight if you shoot in 6k but the full width over sample they have to be doing something to deliver it down to a six a 6k image in XOCN yeah, LT. A, a 6K quote unquote raw. Right. But it's not raw. Yeah. But it is raw. But it's not it's not raw because it's XOCN. But XOCN is kind of raw, but it's not raw. Mm-hmm. So like there's something really weird going on here. But also those 6K over sample files are really nice looking. And yeah. so that's probably what most people are going to use. Mm-hmm. And like you get the dynamic range and the benefit and the white balance adjustment and all that stuff of XOCN, but they're doing some sort of weird Sony magic to deliver an oversampled raw file which technically shouldn't exist yeah <laughs> that's pretty weird yeah so like that's a that's kind of like 
a gotcha. It, it's kind of it, it kind of feels to me like right now in cinema cameras, six K is like the state of the art. Yeah, that and, feels like the sweet spot, like and, a really, really good 6K is what pe- you want. People are trying to push to 8K, and you're starting to see some little things that can do you know, 8K with various caveats. But, mm-hmm. I mean, this this camera seems like it does really good 6K. Yeah, it does. And like, and you get the option of, like, pixel for pixel or the silver sample. And so that's all pretty sweet. And, like, they have anamorphic support and this sort of thing. But, like, it can't shoot open gate, which is weird. That is weird. And then it's also three by two. And so like if I'm shooting open gate anamorphic, I want to shoot two X on a four by three. And it doesn't it doesn't do that. <laughs> I would want a crop mode that's like a four by three crop of the three by two. And so like I it's it's strange. And so like they don't it's sixteen by nine or seventeen by nine, no open gate. And then the anamorphic is only one point three and two X, and there's no one point six. That's weird. And so like you have all those weird like if you're shooting on a like a hybrid camera it feels like a lot of those 1.6 squeeze lenses or 1.5 squeeze lenses are built for people who are shooting on 16 by 9 because they don't have the more rectangular square and so it makes it way too long to unsqueeze to 2x and so i don't know who's shooting in 16 by 9 and out squeezing to 2x that's weird <laughs> i can't see people shooting in 16 or 17 by 9 and out you know squeezing down to 1.3 but if you're shooting on a twenty-five thousand dollar cinema camera you probably want to be de-squeezing out to 2x or you know 1.5 at the worst because you want to get all that anamorphic so it's like they support "quote unquote" anamorphic, but I don't understand wh- like who's going to use it because yeah, of the weird. limitations of the like the sensor itself. It's funny this this to me feels like a classic Sony thing. Where on on one hand, on one end of the spectrum, you've got Fuji that gives you way too many options of mm-hmm. like you know you can shoot in any resolution and any combination of bitrate and you know and size and all that stuff. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got Sony, who it seems like they always want to push the envelope of what is possible on the hardware. Mm-hmm. But then as a result, you end up with all these really weird compromises where it's like you have these 15 different options to pick from and they all have weird different little trade-offs yep. and stuff. And like it's kind of confusing to figure out what you can actually shoot on this camera. Right. And like I get that, you know, the reason like it took so long for us to get to open gate. And people like complain and complain and complain that, oh, well, like it's a three by two sensor. How come I can't just like shoot the whole sensor? And it's like, it's read speed. I mean, you have to chop the top and the bottom off in order to read it fast enough to deliver video. And like, that's, that's the restriction on why you can't get open gate in a lot of cameras. And I'm like, is that what's happening here? They're sticking a three by two sensor and they just don't have the processing power to read an 8K at open gate. It could be. That's, that's, that's reasonable, but. I mean, on the other hand, it's a $25,000 camera. Yeah, so I mean, like, that's strange. I wouldn't think that that would be a limitation on this new camera. And they're like, yo, maybe we'll deliver that in a firmware update later, which I don't believe, because Sony doesn't deliver firmware updates. Well, granted, we don't know what they do on cameras like this. That's true. We don't know. We're not We're not monitoring the Venice firmware updates. Uh, maybe we should, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, maybe they roll it out later. And I just, like, they could, they could have delivered, you know, Maybe full height and then crop it in sideways. I don't. I don't know. Maybe it can't read that fast. Yeah, kind of strange. I mean, it seems like it has very good rolling shutter performance. So I don't think read speed's an issue. But kind of like TBD. Other yeah. things that are weird doesn't support false color. Yeah, that is kind of strange. And it doesn't have any power outputs. If you want power output, you have to put a separate V mount plate on your V mount that has power outputs huh. on it. Yeah, that's weird. And like. 
who so I get that like it has autofocus and this is for running gun people. So maybe you don't have a first AC and you're not putting like a follow focus on there or a Terra deck for like wireless monitoring. It's for people who are like one man banding it. And maybe you have like an extra monitor on the side for your director or that sort of thing. And it's like, if you're going that far, you're just going to be renting a Venice. Like maybe that's the case. Maybe, but I don't know. It just seems like how hard would it have been to add like a barrel jack somewhere on this it, thing? It just, it feels like, it feels like, you know, basics if i'm buying i'm spending twenty five thousand dollars on a cinema camera where's my d-tap yeah i like i don't i I mean we we use for some broadcast stuff we use ursas and mm -hmm. you know it's like a four thousand dollar camera sure and that has a uh it has like an xlr cable on the side yeah that lets you get power out for that thing it's like why like like that's a four thousand dollar camera and has it why doesn't this twenty five thousand dollar one have it yeah so like i said weird gotchas like Mm -hmm. and i think that's basically it but it's like the anamorphic's weird they don't support like 1.6 or 1.5, no false color, no open mm-hmm. gate, no power output. But other than that, this thing seems like crazy capable. It does. And yeah. like the XOCN LT sounds like it's really good. It can support a ton of different modes. I think it can shoot like 4K 120. And I think that the XOCN is like 16-bit RAW. So like you're you're getting that high-level RAW output. Yeah. I mean, it's basically as good as a GFX 100, <laughs> the second, which is also 16-bit. Anyways, I mean, it, to me, this camera feels like it would be the perfect thing for doing, you know, documentary run and gun like that style of videography. Because, you know, you've got this small package that is designed for one person to use. Mm-hmm. It's got autofocus and IBIS and all that, but you're still getting really, really good image quality. Yep. I think the main, the main question is how many people are willing to spend this much money for that use case? It does make it weird because it's like, when you think about a cinema camera, it's like, you know, a crew and all these people using it and that sort of thing. But this one, it's like they took that formula of like all the things you want in a cinema camera. And then they took all of the features that you need for like run and gun and not having like all the time to edit it and like start stuffing it in here. Like they added noise reduction. Yeah. They yeah. added like an SNQ mode so you can like set the, I mean, that's probably a cinema thing, but like you can set the frame rate from 1 to 120. And like they added the IBIS and all these sort of things. And it's like, it's oh the autofocus I guess was the other one. Well, well, and and kind of in reference back to our Black Magic discussion, you can record in those compressed codecs. So if yeah. you need something for quick delivery, you mm-hmm. it's not like you have to shoot in raw. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like you can treat this like a you know a really really expensive FX three if you wanted to, mm-hmm. but it's a you know but you could also treat it like a Venice two light if you wanted to as well and that kind of makes it this really interesting in between yeah. thing yeah cuz that's kind of what i was trying to think about with that like run and gun style thing like you know why would you pick this over an FX6 or an FX9 i mean there's there's clearly there's clearly benefits to this camera but the FX6 is like $7,000 and the FX9 is like 11,000 so right. you know you're you're taking a big leap to get up to this camera mm-hmm. so i don't know how many people are actually going to use it for that but in terms of being a cinema camera i think it's great yeah i think it has a really high a really high headroom and so if you're you want to have something one that you can buy cuz like once you get above this you're renting the camera and maybe mm-hmm. you're less familiar with it but if you're just like one person and you want to have like the best of the best that's still within like a purchasable price range, which twenty five thousand dollars is like, that's a lot of money. Like you're yeah. you're you're a business yeah. of some sort, but it's it's kind of like this is this is that you know reasonable top end. Like and, I could see you a could, YouTuber buying this or something for sure. And, and I mean, this is something that you could grow into. 
Mm-hmm. Like, it, like that's what's kind of neat about it with having stuff like Ibis and autofocus and stuff. Like you could buy this and, you know, be, be doing lower level projects, but then if you wanted to get into making films, you could right. grow into this. It camera. has all the familiarity of things that you would expect from like a hybrid camera and then you can kind of graduate into and then grow from there into doing yeah. more. Cause it does have things like it has two SDI outputs. One of them's uh, 3G and one of them's 12G. And mm-hmm. so like kind of a bummer that I'm both 12G, but cool that you get two and like you have HDMI out and you can swap out the monitors and the eyepiece. And I mean, it kind of like has all the things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you look at it, it looks like a pro camera. I mean, it clearly is priced like one. Yep. It. This is what people wanted Blackmagic to announce. Yeah, it is. And, you know, maybe they would have complained that it was $25,000. Like Blackmagic cannot deliver this camera for $3,000. Yeah, certainly not. It's ridiculous. And like it'd be way, I, way more compromised. But and it, I think people think they can. I think that's part of why they're upset. Yep. But it it was a really interesting uh, contrast to see both of these things announced this week. <laughs> it, it really is. Yeah. So a few a few other things on the sensor. Looks like 16 stops at dynamic range. Like very competitive. It's got dual base ISO 800 and 3200. And the 3200 is almost exactly the same noise level as the 800. So, you know, low light capable. Just, it seems like all around a very, very good camera. Yeah, yeah it does. I think we're going to, I think these are going to be pretty popular. You, you mentioned earlier that you could see a YouTuber buying this. I think we're going to see YouTubers buying this camera. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, you've got people like MKBHD and Linus Tech Tips that are buying Reds and stuff. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's some people that are in that that realm. There's also a lot of people that are shooting on, you know, a Canon R8 or something because they, they don't want to spend a lot of money. But I do think that you've got a lot of people in that middle range, you know, that might be shooting on like, an FX6 or something right now, and like some of them will push to get this camera just because of all its capabilities. I mean, I would say that this is a direct competitor to the V Raptor 8K yeah. because that one's what seventeen thousand dollars, somewhere around there, just for the brain, and like that's an 8K sensor. It's I mean, it's different. It's red raw. It's like it isn't going to have any of these um like 6K oversampled from 8K situations. Like you are just going to get pixel for pixels off of that camera. And like you are, it's not going to have any autofocus. That is like straight up a cinema camera, but it is, you know, after you rig it out, it's probably basically the same price. Yeah, I haven't looked to compare them. I mean, one thing that I think is interesting about this camera is that, you know, yeah, it's $25,000, but it seems like you basically get everything you need to actually use it. Yeah. Like you've got a screen, you've got some type of like, I, I think the, I think the top handle doesn't have any controls on it. It supports the one from the FX9. So if you want to add that, you can. But it seems like this basically, like you could buy this thing and just get started with it. Yeah. And like there's some weird gotchas of like the eyepieces and the microphone mount are like not there, but they're there on the Venice. But the Venice costs three times as much. So don't complain. And a few nice things that they did do, because this is like a, you know, you're kind of moving up into this dual CF Express Type B. The other Sony cameras that are you know, professional grade have Sony dedicated memory, yeah. and that memory is obscenely expensive. Yeah, like that makes it makes CF Express Type B look cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was good to see, and, and especially having dual card slots. Yeah, so you can spend you know two thousand bucks and get dual dual CF Express to like two terabytes mm-hmm. each card, and if you have the same size card, you can do. You can record to both cards at the same time, so you have a local backup. Very cool. Or you can do proxies to one and full res to the other, and it's. It just, it's really capable and it's very well thought through of like, how can we make this as accessible as possible for a single filmmaker people who have a very low budget yeah. or people who want to own this and then sell their camera and their services for people. Right. And, but still be able to have quality that is 
competitive with the Venice 2 because like the colors and the dynamic range all look very, very similar. I, I love it. This is, a, this is a fantastic camera release. If I was like, you know, if if our company was, was a, you know, up to the level like we were doing, you know, these kind of shoots and we were selling our camera service and that sort of thing, like I would say like, man, this is exactly what we need. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that That's the thing. I think that there are people and companies that are at the point that this is going to be the perfect answer for them. Yeah, definitely. So I think it's, I think it is really interesting to compare this to the full frame V Raptor and like how that, how exactly like, you know, which one do you need? But I guess like the, maybe that one's like 35,000 and then it's like, it's the super 35 version. That's like 20,000. Mm, I can't exactly yeah. remember, but there, there is a V Raptor in this, in this price point. But like you said, it doesn't have, it doesn't have all of like the, the single user features. Yeah. I think that's where this really, really excels. It's like, you can be a one man band or you can be like a documentary person and get like super high end footage. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's what sets it apart at least. Like I don't, mm-hmm. you know, not having compared it to the red, you know, eye for eye, I don't, I don't know how it matches up, but I mean, that's the, I don't think there's any other camera at this price point that seems like you could legitimately use it as a single user. Yeah, definitely. I would I would love something like this that is in like the $6,000 range. Oh yeah. Like I want I want a box camera and like I'm like okay, yeah, sure, just you know, dump one of the CF Express card slots, only give me one SDI out, like make charge make me buy the monitor separately for extra cost, like you know, put put a 6K Super 35 sensor in it or, you know, whatever and like do all of those cost-cutting things, but like and then I think that's what people wanted from Blackmagic, right? Just like here's this four or five, $6,000 box camera that does all the things and shoots raw, but like gives you that extra leg up into like a cinema yeah. style camera from your hybrid mirrorless. I agree. Yeah. I mean that, you know, we've made jokes on this show about how we're waiting on that S one H Mark II to come out and how I'm going to buy one. But I mean, I, I would love to buy a better video dedicated camera mm-hmm. and I would love to get those pro features. You know, I'd like to get something that just has a better sensor, but also mm-hmm. like, you know, it supports pro workflows better. Right. And I don't, I don't know what I would get at this point. You know, there's some interesting options in, you know, in like the, let's say like the three to $6,000 range. I was curious to see whether the Blackmagic L mount camera was, you know, was going to be the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of, kind of don't think it is, but yeah, I mean, if they had something like this, that was a lot cheaper, it would be pretty interesting to me. Well, I think that like your high end hybrid cameras, like the X-H2S and like, the L, you know, S5 Mark II and that sort of thing are, uh, maybe that's a mid-range, not a high high end. S1H Mark II would be a high end. But things that are of that caliber that you're, you know, here's a mirrorless camera that's a photo camera or whatever that's hybrid. Like if you're recording raw off of those sensors and getting your 13, 14 stops at dynamic range and like you can get decent resolutions and that sort of thing. I think that there's a lot of means to stretch the ability of yeah. those kind of cameras and get a lot of use out of them that can kind of push you into the range of like, if I want something better, you basically have to make the jump into a, you know, eight, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 camera. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you kind of have to add a lot of accessories and really work to make it like that good of footage out of those cameras. Yeah. And like all the rigging and, you know, adding all these features and they don't support the things that like you want as far as you know, maybe like time code or whatever. But I don't know. I think it, it makes it a hard sell for like the $6,000, $7,000 like box camera because I mean, I don't know if we can get as good a footage out of like the X-H2S as you can like a, a Komodo X. 
but I feel like it's not that far off. Yeah. I feel like you can probably get 80%, 90% there. And does it really matter, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like if you want something that's substantially better, you're getting into FX9 and Burano territory. Right. Or like a red V-Raptor, you know, Super 35 kind of thing. The reason I find something like the even the, the, the existing BS1H box camera so interesting is that I feel like most of my frustrations with using a mirrorless camera for video are more about form factor and like workflow things where it's really annoying having the little tiny internal battery Mm -hmm. and I would rather just not have that but have like a robust, reliable way to power externally. Like a V-mount battery that you can slap on the back of it? Yeah, yeah, which which we don't have with the X-H2S. You know, I'd like to have full time code support, which again, the X-H2S does not have a dedicated time code input. It's also annoying. I mean, this isn't just an XH2S complaint. Like, I, a right, lot of right. these things are true on a lot of mirrorless cameras. It's a lot of things that you don't have. It's all those support pieces that you don't have out of a hybrid camera. And it's like, they can do the footage thing, but they don't have the things that make it even easier to yeah. do your job. And and just like, even just the fact that it has a built-in screen and it, most of these cameras are really compromised with using external screens. And it's like, there's certain things that you you still need mm-hmm. that internal flippy screen for. And so you've got to like have it accessible in some way on your rig. Right. And all that stuff just kind of gets annoying after a while. And it'd be really nice to not have to mess with that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would be really into an XH2S that was in box form. And like we saw it at NAB and now in, in IBC, there's been a few different like uh, V-mount batteries that have been released where, you know, hey, here's a V-mount that can work with, you know, NPF or I guess that wouldn't be V-mount. It was like V-mount or NPF or something. Maybe I'm thinking of something different. Anyways, um, like here's all these different new batteries, V-mount, that have different power output supports. Like this one's got a D-tab and a USB-C on it and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. And it's like, it's cool to be into that world of like video batteries because one, they're very universal. And two, it's like now I have all these power outputs and I don't have to deal with, you know, rigging up a separate battery into my camera and this whole internal battery thing. Yeah, yeah. I just, I really like how, you know, like here's the camera and then you just slide the battery onto the back of it and it just extends the shape of the camera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you like have the flexibility of doing something bigger or smaller depending on what you need. Right. I feel like I've got a pretty good rig set up for my X-H2S now that kind of approximates that where I do right. have a vertical V-mount plate on the back and it kind of gives me some of that, but it still just feels a little janky because it, it feels like two different parts because it mm-hmm. is two different parts. And I also have the problem that it's my main camera. And so if I want to shoot something just totally handheld, I've got to like pull my camera out of this thing. And so I had to make decisions on that rig of, uh, yeah, Yeah. I had to to design it in such a way that I could easily remove the camera. Right. It's not like your dedicated thing. Yeah. And it's like, I succeeded at that, but I just, I I really want like a all in one video solution that can stay rigged up and just always be like in that form and support that well. And I don't know, it, it feels like, like I'm starting to see the reason that some of these higher end cameras are designed the way they are. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so it's Burano's really cool. We all wish that the Black Magic Cinema camera was a Burano, but like way, way cheaper. Mm-hmm. And everyone's mad that it isn't. And uh, the GFX 100, the second, is just really going to take over the market anyway. Yeah. And we're just going to, you know, arrive at that form factor and that's the that's the conclusion, oh, right? Honestly, no, honestly, none of this matters because I'm just going to shoot everything from now on on my iPhone. I mean, supports RAW. You can record to SSD. It has more video features 
than your actual it camera. It's got uh, it's got false color and yeah. uh, and peaking because those are both in that new Blackmagic app. Yeah, exactly. It got shutter angle. Mm-hmm. You can record. I mean, your camera does have camera to cloud, so you can't complain about that. That's true. That's true. You can't. I mean, but with USB C, you can you can connect an Ethernet jack to your phone now. Perfect. Yeah. So that's it. That's the answer. Just I- shoot iPhone 15 it on Pro. IPhone. Yep. Perfect cinema camera. Yeah, the camera of the year. Twenty. Tw- no, I'm not <laughs> saying it. You almost tricked me into it, Daniel. <laughs> That's it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. And if you liked it, tell a friend so they can check it out too. You can find out more about the show at www.cameragearpodcast.com. And you can find us on Twitter at Camera Gear Pod. We'll be back with more next week.